Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirkanish right here in the middle. This is the Smirkanish podcast for independent minds. So, gang, it's late July. A lot of folks are away. I, I don't see, I don't see, we're, you know, awaiting the next indictment of former President Trump. I don't see one dominant story today, TC. I don't see like one thing that's commanding my okay. attention. I see five touchy things. Like they're really touchy. Oh, great. You know, it's, oh, geez, are we going to talk about that? And so, and so here, Someone, and so here we go. All five. Oh, jeez. Someone's going to be offended. This should go well. (laughs) Wow. Um, It's always just good to know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. Hmm. Should we set ground rules? (laughs) Like, okay, everyone, you have to listen to the whole thing. No taking things out of context. Yeah, all that. All that good Mm, stuff. Yeah. They know you by this point. Yes. Oh, boy. All right, let's go to touchy thing number one. Oh, boy. That would be Israel, because it is the front page story today. There's... There's no avoiding what's going on in Israel. I got to tell you something. I have a rudimentary file system here in studio, and there there aren't too many files in it, but these are recurring issues. And you've really got to catch my eye to end up in the filing cabinet. A decade ago, Donnie Dayan did in a piece that was published in the New York Times. Let's just see. July 25, 2012. Dayan was then the chair of the Yesha Council of Jewish Communities in Judea and Samaria. And it was under the headline, Israel's Settlers Are Here to Stay. And the reason that I saved this is because I respected the fact that Donnie Dayan was telling me what I think many were thinking but wouldn't say, which was essentially, we're not headed for a two-state solution. We don't want to talk about a two-state solution. We, we are in the process of seizing, or he would say, taking back the West Bank. It began this way. Whatever word you use to describe Israel's 67 acquisition of Judea and Samaria, commonly referred to as the West Bank in these pages, will not change the historical facts. Arabs called for Israel's annihilation. In 1967, and Israel legitimately seized the disputed territories of Judea and Samaria in self-defense. Israel's moral claim to these territories and the right of Israelis to call them home today is therefore unassailable. Further along, he says, Palestinians have repeatedly refused to implement a negotiated two-state solution. The American government and its European allies should abandon this failed formula once and for all. And accept that the Jewish residents of Judea and Samaria are not going anywhere. On the contrary, we aim to expand 
the existing Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria and create new ones. This is not, as often is portrayed, a theological adventure, but it is rather a combination of inalienable rights and real politic. And then it closes with this paragraph. If the international community relinquished its vain attempts to attain the unattainable two-state solution and replace them with intense efforts to improve and maintain the current reality on the ground, it would be even better. The settlements of Judea and Samaria are not the problem. They are part of the solution. And I think that the mindset expressed by the author of this piece is what is calling the shot and has taken hold in Israel today. Because the impart of this change, this so-called judicial reform, I use the air quotes for the word reform, means that by just one, a one-vote margin in the Knesset, in the parliament, the Knesset can outweigh, overturn a decision of the Israeli Supreme Court. And what it means, among other things, it will now be easier for what has evolved as a very ultra-Orthodox government to annex the entire West Bank. And so the settlements will expand, the Palestinians will never get a legitimate state of their own, and unrest will continue, which I don't think is in the best interest of Israel, the Middle East, or the United States. And Israel will increasingly come to resemble a religious autocracy. And it's being driven by the fact that Netanyahu so wanted to return to power so as to protect himself against indictment. By the way, not unlike someone else seeking high office right now, believing it represents his escape hatch from indictment, that in the case of Netanyahu, he made alliances with some very extreme forces. So two-state solution be damned. This is what we're doing. We'll call it a judicial reform. And we will now have control over the Supreme Court with the parliament which is now in the hands of people who vastly want to expand the presence of Israelis in the West Bank. They will no longer be settlements. I mean, they will be the status quo. I find it interesting that Tom Friedman, for whom I have tremendous respect at the New York Times, I've had the privilege of having him on this program and on CNN on a number of occasions, he was summoned to the Oval Office last Tuesday because, as I read the tea leaves, the president wanted to speak through Friedman, which he then did. You know, Mr. President, when we met last Tuesday and you gave me your very measured statement urging Netanyahu not to rush this legislation through without the broadest possible consensus, which he so clearly does not have, it came as an electric shock to the Israeli political system dominating the news for several days. Well, that's exactly what was intended. And Friedman's analysis matches my own. He's much better dialed in and more erudite on these matters than am I. Here's what he said. He said that uh, Netanyahu's cabinet, one that you, meaning President Biden, described as one of the most extreme you've ever encountered, has its mind set on two dismantling projects. One is to dismantle the power of the Supreme Court to rein in this government's extreme agenda, and the other is to dismantle the Oslo peace process and its roadmap for a two-state solution in order to pave the way for a unilateral Israeli annexation of the West Bank. Oslo has been a cornerstone of America's Middle East policy since 1993. And further along in the piece, 
Friedman says, like, hey, you know, President Obama in 2016 signed a 10-year, $38 billion agreement to enhance Israel's military. Are we supposed to just sit back and watch silently while that military, which we've made such a huge investment in to amplify our power in the Middle East, fractures over efforts to restrict the power of the Israeli Supreme Court? That would be a disaster for us and for Israel which has real enemies like Iran and Hezbollah on its doorstep. Yeah, I agree with Friedman. It's touchy. And and so often we avoid these these uh, com- these conversations because people don't want to say something that might be perceived as being at odds with Netanyahu or with Israel's interests. But I think what Friedman expressed and what I've tried to express is actually in Israel's best interest. This is a mistake. And hopefully it gets reined in, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And in the uh, in the process, uh, those settlements are going to vastly expand in the West Bank. Okay, touchy subject number. How was that? Offend anybody? I mean, well done, though. You know, very even handed. Shall we move on to aging? Oh, good. Yes. This is the Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM Channel 124 and on the SXM app. Shall we move on to aging? Oh, good. Yes. Aging. Let's do all the isms. Ageism. Ageism. Did I not say that the president ought to ditch that long staircase to Air Force One? It would look worse if he did. I told you that. But we had the conversation. We absolutely did. Okay. Well, he's now following my advice. There you go. He is now. There's a big story at NBC today 
note cards and, and linked at smirconish.com, of course. Note cards and shorter stairs, how Biden's campaign is addressing his age. I'm all for this. The story says, look, he's 80. He tripped over the sandbag at the Air Force Academy a couple of weeks ago. And finally, you know, they realized that things have got to be done to assist him in the same way that we would assist our parents. Right. Or our grandparents. Um, Just keep in mind, this is from NBC. This is not coming from Fox News. Biden's answer to voters who question whether he's up to the rigors of a second term is simple. Watch me. Trouble is, says NBC, voters are watching and what they're seeing is hardening impressions that it's time for him to step aside polling shows. Apart from being the most taxing job on the world stage, the presidency is also the most public and signs of advancing age are tough to miss. Apparent to anyone paying attention is that the is that Biden that they remember from the Robert Bork Supreme Court hearings in 87 or the vice presidential debate with Sarah Palin in 08 is a different man today. His gait is less steady. His speech is not as fluid. He's confused Iraq with Ukraine, Rolling Fork, Mississippi with Rolling Stone. At a conference last year, he looked out at the audience and he called for a congresswoman who had recently died in a car crash. All true. He's the oldest president in history. So, yeah, and he's running against a 77-year-old guy. That's true. So, further along in the NBC story, Biden is foregoing the long staircase for a shorter stairway that takes him up through the plane's belly. And it talks about how uh, uh, when he recently came to Philadelphia last week, this is, you know, for him to depart at Andrews, they use the shorter staircase for the arrival because he's simply, I say simply, he's descending it. They still, you know, do the whole the whole process. Biden's use of the shorter staircase, which, of course, reduces the risk of a televised fall that goes viral, has more than doubled since his tumble at the commencement ceremony, according to an analysis by NBC News. In the weeks prior to tripping on stage, he used the shorter set of stairs to get on and off the presidential aircraft 37 percent of the time. This is crazy. They're actually in percentage terms expressing how many times he takes the long and the short stairs. It doesn't surprise me, though. Think of how he must be the most watched person in the in the world. Yes. I stumble every day. I just don't have a camera on me every day. On Thursday, during a short trip to Philadelphia to deliver a speech on the economy, Biden used the shorter set of stairs to board the plane at Joint Base Andrews, the military facility outside Washington. When he arrived in Philly, he used the large staircase to descend from the plane. Interesting. I think it's wise. I think it's I I think it's smart. I think it's absolutely like like what we're going to deny him what he needs because he's the president. I'm thinking of the Bill Burr routine. I know, but it's more like, okay, yes, I understand that. If he were somebody in our orbit, we'd be like, I I know how I am with my mom. Like, be careful, slow down. I completely understand all of that. But, you know, people in our orbit that are older are like, okay, yes, but I'm not the president. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I get it what you're saying, but can those two things be in the same my mother, My mother tells me she's going for a walk in the neighborhood. This is a week ago. Yeah. I'm like, Mom, that, that, of course she that is. sidewalk is uneven. Don't walk on the sidewalk. There's a cemetery nearby. Go walk in the cemetery. It's nice and level. Oh, great. Like, right? Like, you would say this to your mother or your father. Maybe you right. wouldn't. I do. Right. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. So I totally understand. Give but them the shorter staircase. Our parents are not the president. Now, let me ask you something. Oh, would you go. would you put him in one of those chairs? Like, Absolutely okay. not. What is wrong with you? Ageism. Ageism. Let's talk about family. Let's talk about family. So this is touchy story number three. 
And it's from USA Today. Like, again, I find interesting that NBC is 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 running a calculation on the shorter versus the long staircase for Air Force One. This is USA Today. This is not the New York Post. This is not this is not the, you know, uh, Fox News. It's a deep dive on the reaction to President Biden not acknowledging grandchild number seven. I thought it was really interesting that they would write this again. They they uh, there's a Philly connection here. They came with him to Philadelphia and they interviewed people in the crowd. Uh, This was their lead story when I read in early this morning. It's a long story. Right. Lewis Snipe admires President Biden. He has a much different opinion of Grandpa Joe Biden. Snipe, a Lyft driver who spent years repairing pool tables for work, credits Biden with rebuilding the economy and restoring dignity to the White House. Yet Snipe has trouble squaring his support with one of Biden's family decisions. Biden's refusal to acknowledge the existence of his four year old granddaughter living in Arkansas, who his son, Hunter Biden, fathered out of wedlock. If my children have children, they're my children, said Snipe himself, a 70 year old grandfather of five. It amazes me. I'll put it that way, he said, speaking over a Curtis Mayfield jam on the radio and through a face mask to a backseat passenger. Biden's image as a family man who values decency and compassion is central to the political identity he's fostered over five decades in public office. But those virtues have taken a hit as Biden publicly recognizes only six grandchildren and fails to mention the little girl born to Hunter and 32 year old London Roberts. And then further along, you know, we've we've all heard the quote where he says, hey, I have six grandchildren. I'm crazy about them, and I call them every day. During the first Christmas in the White House, the first couple displayed six stockings with the names on them. I didn't know this. Not a huge deal, but Jill Biden dedicated her children's book uh, to her grandchildren and mentioned, you know, six of them by name. We talked about this before. I'm mentioning it again in passing only because it's a deep dive from USA Today today talking about how many people don't like, you know, even people who like him don't like the fact that there's this issue. I said previously, families are complicated. That remains my view. What do you do if Hunter doesn't recognize the child and you're the grandparent? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't want to judge. Like, judge not. I don't. Yes, I'm, I'm not judging. Judged. I'm not judging. I, I don't bring. Not. I don't bring. But that. a lot of people are. Hey, I want him to have the short staircase because I want him to be protected. And I'm not being critical of him for that. I don't know. It's like, ooh. It does make me uncomfortable, though. Me too. Yeah, it does. I have to say. It's touchy. Yeah. It's touchy. I know. Well, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the touchy segment of the Michael Smirconish program Israel today. aging families. What else? Are you ready for slavery? Oh, great. Are you ready for slavery? I said I've got, I've got all these very touchy issues that I want to discuss. I'll do that in just a second. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. 
you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Okay, well, we are up to Katorse because we've discussed touchy subject number one, Israel, touchy subject number two, aging, touchy subject number three, families. Shall we do slavery? Sure, why not? So I've I've not paid close attention to the controversy pertaining to Ron DeSantis and slavery and the curriculum as it relates to African-Americans. I, I know and I've mentioned in recent programming that he rejected the college board's AP course on African-American studies. That just seems wacky to me and mean spirited. I don't you know, I don't know what to make of it. But now it's it's become much larger. Hang on one second. You're ready to play all that audio. But I want I want to set it up a little bit. So. They have apparently overhauled Florida's African-American history standards, and Ron DeSantis is facing a lot of criticism for this. Here's an example. The standards say that middle schoolers should be instructed that slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Ooh, I told you, this is this is touchy, right? In a sign of the divisive battle around education that could infect the 2024 presidential race, Vice President Kamala Harris directed her staffers to immediately plan a trip to Florida to respond, which she did last Friday in Jacksonville. Ahead of her speech, DeSantis released a statement accusing the Biden administration of mischaracterizing the new standards and being, quote unquote, obsessed with Florida. Florida's new standards land in the middle of a national tug of war as to how race and gender should be taught in schools. There have been local skirmishes over banning books, what can be said about race in classrooms, and debates over renaming schools that have honored Confederate generals. Fifth graders, the new standards emphasize positive contributions of black Americans throughout history, from Booker T. Washington to Zora Neale Hurston. Fifth graders, I'm trying to give you a tangible example here, are expected to learn about the resiliency of African-Americans, including how the formerly enslaved helped others escape as part of the Underground Railroad and about the contributions of African-Americans during westward expansion. The teaching of positive history is important, said Albert Broussard, a professor of African-American studies at Texas A&M, who has helped write history textbooks for McGraw-Hill. Quote, black history is not just one long story of tragedy and sadness and brutality. On this subject, Governor DeSantis has said the following. Well, you should talk to them about it. I mean, I didn't do it and I wasn't involved in it. Um, but I think um, I think what they're doing is I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed uh, 
you know, being a blacksmith into, into doing things later, later in life. Um, but the reality is all of that is rooted in whatever is factual. They listed everything out. And if you have any questions about it, just ask the Department of Education. You can talk about those folks. But, I mean, these were scholars who put that together. It was not anything that was, um, that was done politically. I mean, how do you teach slavery is the big picture question. I mentioned that the vice president traveled to Jacksonville last Friday to respond. She said this. Adults know what slavery really involved. It involved rape. It involved torture. It involved taking a baby from their mother. How is it that anyone could suggest that in the midst of these atrocities, that there was any benefit to being subjected to this level of dehumanization? So uh, this all reminded me, as I was watching this unfold, I am a reader of obituaries. I think that I learn a great deal by reading obituaries and just I'm I enjoy stories and I like hearing stories of of life. And oftentimes here on this program, I quote for you obituaries like I'm about to do. This was two months ago, two months ago, published in The New York Times on May 27, 2023 headline Stanley Engerman revisionist scholar of slavery dies at 87. I'd never heard of him before, but I, I, I filed this away and, and, and then went looking for it. And Alex, who's been interning, helped me quickly put my fingers on it. Stanley Engerman, one of the authors of a deeply researched book that wading into the fraught history of American slavery argued that it was a rational, viable economic system and that it enslaved black people who were more efficient workers than free white people in the, in the North, died May 11 in Watertown, Mass. He was 87. I got I to gotta make like very clear that immediately thereafter, it talks about his two-volume book and with whom he co-authored it. They were not defending slavery, they said. If any aspect of the American past evokes a sense of shame, it's the system of slavery. But much of the accepted wisdom about it, they said, was distorted or just plain wrong. Slave agriculture was not inefficient compared with free agriculture. Economies of large-scale operation, effective management, and intensive utilization of labor made southern slave agriculture 35% more efficient than the northern system of family farming. Again, they weren't condoning what happened, but they were commenting on the efficiencies that this horrific system was predicated upon. The book was called Time on the Cross, The Economics of the American Negro Slavery, it was Professor Engerman and Professor Robert Fogel who used data analysis to challenge what they called common characterizations of slavery, including that it was unprofitable, inefficient, and pervasively abusive. Some of the reviews, they got a lot of attention, as you can imagine. The book attracted a lot of attention, including a rave review by the economist Peter Passell in the New York Times. Quote, if a more important book about American history has been published in the last decade, I don't know about it. He described the work as a corrective, jarring attack on the methods and conclusions of traditional scholarship. 
Not every review was as kind. Thomas Haskell, writing in the New York Review of Books in 1975 about three books that challenged the findings of Time on the Cross, called it severely flawed. Some historians criticized its relatively benign portrayal of slave life. Several months after it was published, about a 100 historians, economists, and sociologists all gathered for a three-day conference to discuss the book at the University of Rochester, where Professor Engerman and Professor Fogel taught. The debate was so contentious that the Democrat and Chronicle described it as a scholarly warfare. Some of the criticism focused on the two men's emphasis on statistics over the brutal realities of slavery. Historian Kenneth Stamp said they deny the slave his voice, his initiative, and his humanity. They reject the untidy world in which masters and slaves, with their rational and irrational perceptions, survived as best they could, and they replace it with a model of a tidy, rational world that never was. The book that I'm describing was a winner of the Bancroft Prize for History from Columbia University in 1975, but not without controversy. Some of the school's trustees disagreed with the choice because a university spokesperson said the author's conclusions were based on new methods of data analysis. Stanley Lewis Engerman, whose obituary I'm quoting from, you might be interested to know, received a bachelor's and master's degree in accounting from NYU, earned a Ph.D. in political economy from Johns Hopkins. He taught economics for a year at Yale, joined the University of Rochester, was a professor of economics there, and later a professor of history. He later received a Guggenheim Fellowship to study free and unfree labor in the 18th and 19th centuries. I was, it stuck out in my mind. I was thinking to myself, this was 1975. I can't imagine that a book in 2023 would analyze, you know, some of the economy and efficiency issues around that model, condemning it, but taking an academic interest in, hmm, what was the productivity like in comparison to the free family northern farms? I told you, touchy. It's all touchy. Very touchy. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm sitting here cowering I'm half myself. Cringing. I, I, like, I am I'm, I'm listening to every single word come out of your mouth. You're doing great. Well, no, I'm not doing great, stuff. and you don't have. But I, the the obit is interesting, isn't it? Very. Like I just like wow. That, like was the headline caught my. What do you mean a revisionist scholar of like, what's he talking about? And and then I read that. Okay, one more, one more. Hold on, Israel, aging, families, slavery. Uh, Jason Aldean. Yeah, Jason Aldean. So the first concert after the controversy was canceled due to weather. Then he did perform, uh, try that in a small town. And before he performed it, he spoke to the audience. I love our country. I want to see it restored to what it once was before all this bullshit started happening to us. I love my country, I love my family, and I will do anything to protect that. I can tell you that right now. So you you won't be surprised to hear that it's now the number... Here's what I want to say. All right, let me hear this. A lot of things out there, and one thing I love, you guys know how it is, this day and age, cancel culture is a thing. That's something that... 
If people don't like what you say, they try and make sure that they can cancel you, which means try and ruin your life, ruin everything. One thing I saw this week was a bunch of country music fans that could see through a lot of the bullshit, all right? You'll not be surprised now to know that it's the number two Billboard 100 song. Uh, number one is seven, TC. That would be Jungkook featuring Lato. Okay. Number two. Oh, oh, good. Number two is Try That in a Small Town with Jason Aldean. Uh, Morgan Whalen has number three last night, and this is of interest. Number four, Fast Car, Luke Combs. Come on. Num- Isn't that something? Right. So what's going to win out? Wow. Fast Car with you know Luke Combs singing the Tracy Chapman song. By the way, I listened over the weekend to both Tracy Chapman so and also they're to, also I think they're both great. I know. And Luke Combs. But the controversy around this continues, and it's done nothing but help him sell records or whatever the word is that I should use. All right. I'm finished. I'm finished. There you go. Five, well five touchy things. The Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.